I like it when topics are assigned to me. I'm lazy. Getting a question out is half the work. I tell my students who ask me, please give us a list of acceptable topics for essays. No, I will not do that. I will not rob you of half the work. Getting the question out is half the work. Getting the answer is the other half. So when a merciful curate like Father Bright gives me an assignment, I'm grateful. So he's given me the title, Divine Truth, Our Heart's Deepest Longing. Now that's quite a title. Can someone write a speech to that title? There are certain book titles, novel titles, that no one could write a good novel to, like The Well at the World's End. Well, let's look at some of the words in the title. Divine truth, our heart's deepest longing. First of all, what's the heart? The heart is the abyss that is at the center of our being. The heart is the one part of our being that is not just a part of our being, nor is it all the parts together. Because when you think about yourself and you say, what am I? And you answer, I'm a body and a soul. And then you say, what's a soul? Well, a soul is that which gives life to the body, but it's also a spirit. And what's a spirit? Well, a spirit is something it can think and it can choose. Well, what is thinking? Well, thinking is understanding and reasoning and judging. Uh, you can classify yourself that way. There are innumerable roadmaps to the self, pictures of the self, psychographs, uh, but there's always something that escapes every possible picture or concept of yourself. And that's the one who's making the picture. In a movie theater, you can project any image on the screen at all, except one thing, the projecting machine. Because if that were an image on the screen, there'd be something else that had to project it. So no matter what picture you project of yourself, that picture is your object. You look at it, just as you look at the picture of something in the external world. But the one who's looking is not at the same time the one who's looked at. This is the most difficult thing I'm going to say tonight. I assure you, this is the most obscure, so bear with me for another 30 seconds. Suppose that you knew every single true fact about yourself. Suppose there were quintillions of them. And suppose you were capable of fully understanding every single fact about you up until that moment in your life. You couldn't. Why? Because your act of understanding all those facts is itself a new fact. And that new fact could be only understood by another new fact. So in every act of understanding anything, you create a bigger self, which you can't know except by remembering it. Because we're in time, we can never fully know ourselves. Only God, who is in eternity, can know all of us. Just as a character in a novel cannot know himself, only the author can. Well, that heart, I think, is what scripture means. Uh, it uses the word heart, certainly, to designate something deeper than feeling, emotion, or sentiment. It's not Hallmark greeting cards heart. Uh, it's the I. When we say my body, my soul, my thoughts, my feelings, my choices, who is the I that does it? Solomon says in the Proverbs, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are all the issues of life. The heart is like the, the fountain and all the water comes out of that fountain. But the fountain is not just another drop of water.
The heart is like the root, and out of the root comes the tree. But the root is not just another tree. It's the root of the tree. Jesus talks about the heart. He says to the disciples that uh, uh, scrupulous concern for the Pharisaic obedience to the law is not terribly important because you can't be defiled by what goes into you. He's speaking of eating with unwashed hands, but I think he would also apply that to uh, thoughts. If they come from somebody else, they can influence you for good or evil, but you have to internalize them. They can't enter you, your free self, without you saying, these are my thoughts now. Maybe you say they're false, maybe you say they're true, but they're yours. Somebody else does you an act of charity or an act of harm, but you have to internalize that. It's up to you. It's up to your sovereign freedom. Whether you internalize, let's say, an act of of violence against you in one way or in another way. Once that piece of garbage enters your toilet bowl, you can flush it away or you can play with it. So the heart is at the same time freedom. Your choice to take your attitude towards whatever circumstances they put you in. They clump you in jail. And they take away all your freedom. They can't do that. They can't take away your freedom to have a certain attitude towards your unfreedom. Well, all that's part of the heart. And this is very confusing, but that's exactly my point. It's confusing. It's mysterious. You can't quite clearly define it. Out of the heart, says Jesus, flows sin and virtue. Out of the heart and not just something more external than the heart flows uh, greed and pride and lust and the deeds of, of, of these things and also their opposites and therefore out of the heart flows love not sentimental love not merely intellectual love not merely external philanthropy not merely natural instinctive human affection and friendship all of these are fine and wonderfully valuable things but the deepest kind of love the fundamental love the basic option of saying yes or no to God that's determined by love very few people if anybody decides whether to say a basic yes or a basic no to God with their heart by a kind of a scientific study of the evidence here is what I can get out of it here is what I can lose here is the evidence for here is the evidence against here are the arguments for the existence of God here are the arguments against the existence of God here are the authorities that are atheists here are the authorities that are theists let me balance them now and do a little bit of mental bookkeeping that's not how people decide whether to have faith and hope and charity or to refuse they decide with what one theologian called a fundamental option And I think that's a very good phrase. But God designed our hearts as images of his own heart. And therefore, he designed us to, as St. Augustine said in probably the most famous sentence any Christian has ever written in the history of the world outside the Bible. He said, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. Since God has designed us and made us for himself, set us in time as creatures that are like rivers moving towards the sea that is himself. 
since God has set us into a plan, a plot, a, a providence, a, a movement, a, a purposive thing called life. Uh, therefore, we cannot not love God in some way. We can not, not love happiness. We cannot not want our final end. We can misconstrue it. We can say it's not God. But it's simply psychologically impossible for a human being to want to be miserable. To love misery for its own sake. When we love misery, we love it for some other sake. For instance, I'm a Red Sox fan and proud of it. I love misery. You know why? I'm arrogant. I'm proud. It makes me feel good. We are the chosen people. We are chosen to suffer. We're superior to you. You see, so even, even masochism doesn't love suffering for its own sake. It loves suffering because there's a, a hidden agenda there. There's a secret happiness. Even a suicide loves happiness. But why does he commit suicide? Because his love of happiness makes him unable to tolerate unhappiness. And his life is miserably unhappy and hopeless. That's why he commits suicide. But why then do people do opposite things? One, let's say, joins the armory and one is a draft dodger. Well, they're both seeking happiness, but they're interpreting it differently. We can't not seek our final end, which is complete happiness. We all have a lover's quarrel with the world. No matter how happy we are, we're not. That is not completely happy. You know that only when you're very happy. When you're a little happy, you might think, well, a little more and I'd be completely happy. But it's at those moments that are peak experiences. Those moments that you can think of in your life when you were the most deeply happy. It's at those moments that you most clearly knew that Augustine was right. Your heart is always restless, even in those moments of apparent rest. And it's most clear there. So our heart's deepest love and longing is what God is. Now, what is God? The question is, of course, unanswerable. God is indefinable. It's much easier for a flea to define a human being than for a human being to define God, because the distance between a flea and a human being is much less than the distance between a human being and God, because the distance between any two finite things is only finite, and the distance between the greatest finite thing and infinity is infinite. And the difference between the mind of a flea and the mind of a human being is much less than the distance between the mind of the greatest human being and the mind of God. If you were to ask me what human being had the most brilliant mind in the history of the world, well, it depends on what, what field you're talking about. If you're talking about science, it's probably either Newton or Einstein. If you're talking about philosophy and theology, I'd vote for Thomas Aquinas. All right, here's what Thomas Aquinas said. His masterpiece, the Summa Theologica, was unfinished. They asked him why he couldn't finish it. And he said, shortly before he died, compared with what I have seen, uh, all of what I have written is straw. Straw. It wasn't so much what he saw as who he saw. According to sworn testimony at his canonization hearings, 
his confessor, Brother Reginald, testified that uh, he had seen Thomas alone in the chapel uh, in the middle of the night, uh, prone on the floor, and uh, he testified that he, he heard words coming from the crucifix. And this was after Thomas had written the treatise on the Eucharist. And the words were, Thomas, my son, you have written well of me. What will you have as your reward? And Thomas answered simply three words, only yourself, Lord. Now there's wisdom for you. Perfect answer. He was Thomas's deepest longing, and Thomas knew and taught very clearly that we cannot know what God is. He knew that not just by theory, but by experience. All the mystics say that. The one thing common to all authentic mystics in all the history of the world, even in non-Christian religions, is that the ultimate truth cannot be defined in ordinary language. That language stretches to the breaking point. But one word for this thing that is beyond language to say and beyond ordinary thinking to think is surprisingly truth. Those who are the closest to God, whether they're mystics or saints, and they're not identical, uh, for Eastern religions, being a saint is a means to being a mystic. For Western religion, being a mystic is a reward for being a saint. But in both cases, there's light, there's truth. Uh, there's not just feeling, there's not just peace, there's not just overcoming suffering, there's not just a, uh, a practical emotional payoff, there's, there's truth. That's one of the words for God. Other words are goodness and beauty. But all the words for God are analogies. Jesus spoke in parables. He didn't say what God was, he said what God is like. And theologians, when they want to use literal language uh, and not tell you what God is like, but what God is, they can't do it. All they can tell you is what God is not. Then we can use literal language. God is not a microphone. God is not uh, a fingernail. God is not an abstract principle. God is not a sacred tree. We know what those things are, and we can say God is not that. And that's our first great commandment. Thou shalt not have other gods before me. Do not confuse me with anything that you can think. The very last command of the last apostle in the New Testament, uh, the last verse of John's first letter, well, maybe the second and third letters were written later, I don't know, but the very last verse is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Our hearts long for this divine truth, not just factual truth about things we know a little bit about already in this world, but deep calls unto deep. The mysterious and ungraspable depth of our own heart calls out to its inventor and maker. And the darkness in us, surrounded by a little bit of light, calls out to God, who is pure light, but to us he looks dark. As the sun looks dark to the eyes of the bat or the owl or night creatures and good at shadows well we are that bat and that owl we're very good at shadows we're very good at, at science but we're not very good at theology we have to have we have to make a choice between very perfect knowledge of very imperfect things and very imperfect knowledge of very perfect things 
we can have very clear knowledge of things that have almost no reality at all, like numbers. Thus, mathematics is an exact science. We can have a surprisingly powerful knowledge of physical things. We can have a fairly powerful knowledge of the life sciences. A much less, but still adequate knowledge of the human sciences. But as we rise in importance, we think in adequacy. We can know only the tiniest bit about God, who is the most important thing of all. So if God never came out of hiding and revealed himself, we'd be sunk. When you want to know something that has no life at all, a number, uh, all the initiative is on your side, and you can have adequate and complete knowledge of it. When you want to know something that is real, but doesn't have any life of its own, like a rock, it's pretty easy. It won't run away and hide. Uh, all the activity is on your side. You ask it questions, and it automatically answers you. When you want to know something that's a little more mysterious, like how trees grow, it gets a little more complicated. When you want to know an animal, especially a higher animal, well, you have to tame it. And it can run away from you. It has almost, almost freedom. And it hides. It plays games with you. Almost like a human being. So some of the initiative has to be on its side. And you can't use simply the torture chamber uh, to find out what's in a cat. You can do that with a rock. Just chop it up in, in half and all the innards will come out. Well, when it comes to another human being, the initiative is 50-50 because we're essentially equal. So nobody can know without listening. You don't just talk. You don't just experiment on human beings. You have to win their confidence. When it comes to something like an angel, as superior to us as we are to animals, well, we know very little about angels except by divine revelation. Just as animals know very little about us except what we teach them by training them and taming them and loving them. Finally, when it comes to knowing God, all the initiative has to be on his side. Even human reason is a divine revelation. The medieval said God wrote two books, nature and scripture. Both are revelations, but in different ways. So this divine truth that we long to know, we can't know unless God initiates it. All the religions of the world look for ultimate truth. And they come up with very different uh, notions of what it is. Is it a person? Is it one? Is it many? Uh, is it good? Is it beyond good and evil? Uh, is it a mode of consciousness? It is a being? Uh, is it a kind of a, a, a good order? Is it peace? Uh, what is it? One religion is different than the others. The claim that Christianity is superior to all other religions, not that there's no profound truth in other religions, there's some profound truth everywhere, but the claim, the unpopular claim, that Christianity is unique and superior in kind to all other religions in the world is based on the fact that it has a different origin. It is not man's word about God. It is God's word about man. It is not our attempt to climb the hill of God by even the best human means, whether they're philosophy or mystical experience or, or holiness, 
but they are rather the path that God made down the mountain. If all the religions of the world are like roads on a mountain, and there's only one God, and God is at the top of the mountain, which is a fair enough analogy, why aren't all the roads equal? Simple. One comes down, the others go up. And if that's not true, if the Christian religion isn't God's way down the mountain, if Jesus Christ is not God's word about man, but man's word about God, then Christianity is a fake religion. All right, so that's what we want. We want what God is, and we can only use words in this weak and analogical way. Truth, goodness, beauty. Well, I'd like to talk about truth, even though the other two are also important, because I guess philosophers sort of professionally specialize in that. So I'd like to tell you three different philosophies of truth, uh, and then how this relates to Christ, and then finally, uh, how these doctrines about Christ are true in these three ways. Three basic philosophies of truth. Let's call them subjective truth, objective truth, and divine truth. First of all, subjective truth. It's true for me, but not for you. Uh, a relativism of truth, which is popular in our culture, means that there is no such thing as objective truth. We each make our own truth. We make our own world. We live in our own world, and we can live in a common world only because we share these private worlds. In other words, the world is our collective dream. If it weren't collective, if we each had our own dream, we couldn't communicate. But because our dreams overlap, because we have common knowing structures, five senses, and a mind that thinks reasonably, uh, and desires that flow from the same kind of brain and nervous system, therefore we have uh, overlapping worlds. But truth is simply what we invent. Truth is like art rather than science. You make it, you invent it, rather than you discover it. In other words, uh, the philosophy of subjective truth is quite correct, except for one thing. Uh, the confusion of the self with God. Yeah, truth is subjective to God, because God created it, invented it, just as, let's say, Tolkien invents the truth of Middle Earth. Are elves tall and formidable, or are they short and cute? Well, they're tall and formidable in Middle Earth. Why? Because Tolkien invented Middle Earth. They're short and cute in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Why? Because Shakespeare invented A Midsummer Night's Dream. So what's objective to us is subjective to God. All of human science is understanding God's art. So by that slight confusion of putting man in the place of God, we get the notion of subjective truth, a slight confusion. Uh, excuse me, God, you're in my seat. Our great United States Supreme Court, about 10 years ago, uh, stated in its Casey decision uh, that that is the truth. Uh, the, one of the fundamental human rights According to the author, I believe it was Justice Kennedy, he must have been what we in Massachusetts call a Kennedy Catholic. We have a lot of Kennedy Catholics, but not many Catholic Kennedys. Uh, he said one of the most fundamental human rights is to define the meaning of life and the mystery of existence. We define that. 
God has a sense of humor. This was the Casey decision. Remember Casey at the bat? Remember what happened to Casey? Those of you who are old enough know the poem. All right. That's subjective truth or relativism. Now, second, objective truth. What's that? Well, facts. Suppose we all were hallucinating right now. Suppose we all had the DTs and we saw purple demons flying around in the church. There's not a single person in the sanctuary who didn't see the purple demons. But they weren't there. We were all drunk. Well, see, they're not there. Objective truth is not found by counting noses. How it's found is not an easy question to answer. But what it is, is an exceedingly easy question to answer. What is truth? Asked one modern skeptical philosopher whose name happened to be Pontius Pilate. And truth stood there in front of him. Uh, so he crucified truth. But he crucified truth first in his mind and in his heart before he crucified it on the cross. What is truth is a very easy question to answer. Mortimer Adler, one of the clearest philosophers in the world, I think he's still alive, he's about 95 years old, still writing very clear books, uh, once had a newspaper column, a sort of a philosophical Dear Abbey. People would write in, what did the philosopher say about this? And he would always give an answer in the same sort of structure. Well, this is a good question, it's important because... Second paragraph. Philosophers have differed about the answer to this question. On the one hand, there's this position. On the other hand, there's that position. And then the third paragraph, he would say, this is the position that seems most reasonable to me because. And he collected these newspaper columns in a book called 101 Great Ideas. It's a very simple, popular book. 100 out of these 101 ideas had the same format that I just described. But the first one had a different format. Uh, after asking the question, what is truth? Adler said, this is a very easy question to answer, and there is only one possible answer to it. And he quoted Aristotle, the great philosopher of common sense. Aristotle defined truth in, I believe it was 47 words. Each word had only one syllable. If a man says of what is that it is, or if he says of what is not that it is not, then he speaks the truth. But if a man says of what is that it is not, or if he says of what is not that it is, then he does not speak the truth. Now there's a genius for you. Profundity in words of one syllable. Telling it like it is, that's truth. So it's very easy to know what truth is. If you say truth is anything else than that, Truth is what works, truth is consensus, truth is what coheres together with my experience, truth is what society tells me. I say, is that what truth really is? Is it really true that truth is only what works? Oh, so it is that. So you're using Aristotle's old definition. Of course there's objective truths. What, what is? Facts. All right, we've got two kinds of truth now relativism and facts what's divine truth what's the third kind well it's something more than subjective truth and something more than objective truth it's not just a mode of consciousness it's not just a set of thoughts nor is it simply factual information out there that you receive 
because the first definition is just true of my mind and the second definition is just true of the world external to my mind but God is the creator and designer both of my mind and of the word world external to my mind so ultimate truth divine truth is not just what my mind believes about God nor is it simply objective facts about God it's what God is God's nature suppose you were to say divine truth is just the objective facts about God once I believe them and internalize them and apply them that doesn't work that's just two plus one that's just objective plus subjective there's got to be something that includes both because here I am and here the world is and something holds us both together the world has an intelligibility in it and I have an intelligence in me and we fit we're like long-lost kin folk oh my long-lost brother I look at the material world which doesn't have life or consciousness and I see design in it like a scientific theorem or a work of art and I say there's something on my level behind it how come it's so intelligible and how come I have the innate ability to know it? There must be a common author of these two things. We stand in a common light. So what I'm most longing for is that light. Not just knowledge of facts about the world or even about myself. And not just feelings and opinions about the world or about myself. What I thirst for is light. People who don't understand that think that truth threatens their freedom or truth is boring or objective truth is rigid and inhuman and they don't even sometimes want to go to heaven for fear that they'll get answers. They prefer questions. They say it is better to travel hopefully than to arrive, which is pure nonsense. Because if it were better to travel hopefully than to arrive, then you wouldn't hope to arrive. Because if traveling is better than arriving, then arriving is worse than traveling. So you can't travel hopefully, you travel fearfully. Oh dear, I might arrive someday. Isn't that awful? There's a line in one of Paul's letters somewhere that describes the modern academic perfectly. Always learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Well, if you're always learning, why aren't you coming to a knowledge of the truth? Because you're practicing contraception spiritual contraception you're contracepting your mind the, the mind is to truth what the sex organs are to babies they're teleologically geared to it if you don't know that you've never lived on a farm or else you've been in a university classroom all your life <laughs> in one of the characters of the great divorce Lewis's great modern fantasy that brings Dante's divine comedy into modern psychology and modern attention spans it's only about 100 pages long but it's a it's about heaven hell and purgatory uh, there's a, a character who's afraid to go to heaven actually he's a bishop because uh, he's very liberal and he doesn't believe in objective truth he thinks it's stultifying and uh, the heavenly spirit that's tempting him to give up his illusion come to heaven says you believe that because you think that truth is only an idea that can be known by the abstract intellect come with me and I will take you to a place where truth is something like liquid gold that you can swim in something that you can drink drinkable light 
And the poor bishop says, I can make nothing of that. Well, if you were a Christian, you would. That's what Jesus is. Drinkable light. Truth in the flesh. A man with flesh and blood who says, I am the truth. Nicholas of Cusa, the late medieval mystic, makes a point that truth enters the soul through one of its highest faculties, the mind, uh, in the opposite way that food enters the stomach. He says we have a hunger for both, both food for the body and food for the mind. But what we hunger for with our body is to transform that food into our body. So when we eat an apple, we don't want the apple to stay undigested in our stomach. We want that apple to become stomach. And when we eat a pig, we don't want that pig to squeal in our stomach. We want the pig cells to become human cells. But when the mind seeks to know the truth, the mind, if it's honest, does not want to transform the truth into mind, but rather transform the mind into truth. What's less than us enters into us by conforming to us and by being assimilated into us and becoming a part of us, and it is transformed. But when we hunger for something greater than ourselves, it cannot enter into us. How in the world could God enter into us? How in the world could divine truth enter into a human mind? And the answer is, of course it couldn't. But we could enter into it. If God opens up to us and invites us to come to him, that can be done. And when that happens, he's not transformed. We are. That's why he's commanded us to pray. Not because he needs our prayers, but because we do. We get transformed. Now, according to Christianity, truth became a human being. His name was Jesus Christ. How can that be understood? There are four Christian dogmas. The Latin word dogma is simply the translation of the Greek word mysterion, which means mystery, even though the two words dogma and mystery connote opposite things in modern English, they shouldn't. They mean the same thing. A mystery is not just a darkness. It's through a glass darkly. And a dogma is not just clarity. It's through a glass darkly. But there are four dogmas or mysteries about Christ that are defined in the creeds. The creeds don't define Christ. They define truths about Christ. They're a roadmap. A roadmap is practical. It's a need-to-know thing. A roadmap is true, but it doesn't tell you everything. The Bible itself says Christ has many new, new names. We'll find out some of them in the next life. He appears in the book of Revelation uh, and says, got a new name. And we're going to have a new name too, which we don't know until we receive it. So dogma doesn't contradict mystery. It presupposes mystery. But they're still true. Okay, here's roadmaps, creeds, terribly practical things. It's possible to travel successfully without getting lost without a roadmap, but not likely. Roadmaps are extremely practical. The incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, and the trinity. The incarnation simply means the enfleshing of God in Christ, and thus it means that Christ is divine and not just human, and thus it means that he has two natures, fully divine and fully human, at the same time. Not somewhere in between the two, 
not half of them divine and half of them human, like a centaur, which is half animal and half human, not like Mr. Spock, a half breed, half Vulcan and half human, but fully divine, fully human. Possible? With God, all things are possible. Well, all things, but is that not a contradiction? Even God can't do nonsense. Even God can't make something and not make something at the same time and in the same way. God can walk through a wall, but he can't both walk through a wall and not walk through a wall at the same time, because that's nonsense. Nonsense doesn't become sense when you say God can do it. Walking through a wall and not walking through a wall at the same time makes as much sense as glumpf, glumpf, glumpf. And when I say God can do it, it doesn't suddenly acquire sense. So we have to show that the incarnation makes sense. Well, of course it makes sense. You may not believe it, but it makes sense. A human author, even, can do something analogous to the incarnation. Alfred Hitchcock put himself into his movies as one of the minor characters. A human author could put himself into a fictional novel as one of his own characters. He would then be, at the same time, fully transcendent and fully imminent. He'd be both the author and the character at once. Well, Christianity claims God did that. Even we have something a little analogous to the apparent contradiction of the Incarnation. A single person with two opposite natures. How could, how could Jesus be both human and divine? Because human is immortal and divine is immortal. And human is imperfect and divine is perfect. And human is finite and divine is infinite. And human is creature and divine is creator. Those are absolutely opposite. Yes, that's right. And so are, let's say, visible and invisible. Yeah, so, well, are you visible or are you invisible? Well, my soul is invisible, but my body is visible. Ah, but are you one person or two? Are you a little spiritual person like a ghost and then a second material person like an animal or a machine? Is that what you are, a ghost and a machine, two people? Oh, no, I'm one person. See, one person can have two opposite natures. So if even you can do it, certainly Christ can do it. Gee, that's very confusing and mysterious. Ah, good, yes it is. But it's, it's believable. Why do Christians believe the Incarnation? Well, it comes out of the data. It happened. Here's somebody in history. A man who actually existed, just as much as you did. And he claimed to be God. And he performed miracles. And he rose from the dead. And he was incredibly wise and incredibly good. And if you're incredibly wise and incredibly good, then you're not a liar. The argument doesn't amount to a mathematical certainty. It gives you wiggle room if you really want it. But it's enough to convince honest, open-minded minds who actually meet him. You can meet him today in the Gospels. You can meet him today in the church, in fellow Christians. But the doctrine of the Incarnation, or of the two natures of Christ, or of the divinity of Christ, comes out of our data. It's solidly rooted in history. It's not some abstract theory concocted by white-bearded theologians with absent minds sitting in a, a dark room. Well, what did he come for? That's the next step. Well, he came to forgive our sins, to atone for our sins. 
the name that was assigned to him was Jesus. And the angel commanded, you shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. So this is the doctrine of the atonement, the at-one-ment, the healing of the great divorce. God created us to be married to him forever. We declared divorce in Eden. God would not accept that, so he seduced us. He would not just leave us alone. He would not force us. So he had this incredibly gentlemanly plan that took many, many millennia, culminating in Christ and his job, his fundamental job, he keeps saying, is to die. That's what I came to earth for. That's his destiny. That's his purpose. We don't have to understand how it works to believe that it works. There's a wonderfully funny line in one of the Woody Allen movies. I even forget which movie it is. Woody Allen is a, a Jewish father, and uh, he's less pious than his wife. But they're both disappointed that their son has become an atheist. So uh, Woody Allen's wife says, uh, prove to our son that God exists. And Woody Allen says, why doesn't he believe in God? He says, well, he asks, if there are God, why are there Nazis? Answer his question. Woody Allen says, I'm supposed to know why there are Nazis? I don't even know why the can opener works. <laughs> you don't have to know how a thing works in order to know that it works. I don't even know how electricity works, but I know enough to push the button. So theories about how the atonement works are one thing. Uh, what we know because God has given it to us is that it does work. All right? That makes Christ not just an objectively important object, but a subjectively important object. He saves me from my sins and from their consequence. By the way, when we use that formula that Christ saves us from our sins, let's remember that he doesn't just save us from punishment. That would be a very selfish notion. No, uh, he doesn't come just to justify you, he comes to sanctify you. Thirdly, the resurrection. The doctrine is very simple. Only, well, let me, let me change the sentence. It's very difficult to fudge it. You've got to be very clever to fudge it, which is why intellectuals can get away with nonsense, because they're clever enough to find all these little hiding places, but ordinary people can't find them. Uh, you can't say the resurrection is, oh, some sort of holy history that didn't really happen or that the resurrection is a resurrection of faith in the hearts of the apostles instead of the recomposition of the molecules of a corpse because if that's all it was well faith in what was it a hallucination in the earliest creed the apostles creed the phrase for the resurrection of the body is scandalously concrete the phrase in greek is anastasis necron it's Greek. Anastasis means literally standing up. Stasis is a word for posture, and ana means up again. And the word for ne the word necron doesn't just mean body; it means corpse. So it means the standing up of the corpse. That's as concrete as you can get. The resurrection is a completion of his work because he had two problems to deal with because the two aspects of our being, the soul and the body. Sin and death. Death is the consequence of sin. 
death of the body follows death of the soul because there are two aspects, two dimensions of one person. So his death took care of the sin problem, his resurrection took care of the death problem. Took care of, I should say, takes care of because he's present. The way the resurrection cuts into our lives is not just that Christ rose, but that he is risen. He's here. If you're a Civil War buff, suppose you actually met Robert E. Lee right here in this sanctuary. Not just uh, an actor imitating him, but the man himself. No, that's how you're supposed to meet Christ. Finally, the doctrine of the Trinity came out of all these others as its foundation, especially the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. If there's only one God, and if Christ is who he claims he is, namely the Son of God, equal to the Father, uh, if he claims for himself equality with God, though he doesn't grasp it, if he truly says, which of you can convict me of sin? If there's not a single attribute that the Father has that he doesn't have. And furthermore, if he promises that when he leaves physically by the ascension, he will send the Spirit, and that's even better for them. That astonishing verse in John 16, it's better for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, I can't send the Spirit. But if I go away, I'll send him to you. Better to have him. And if the New Testament verses about the Holy Spirit, which clearly say he is God, are to be believed, then our data include the following. Number one, there's only one God. Number two, the Father is God. Number three, the Son is God. Number four, the Spirit is God. We've got four pieces of data. How do you reconcile your data? Theology is a science, like any other science. All the theories of any science have to be judged by the data. Theory don't judge data, data judge theory. So here's theology's data, divine revelation. One God, Father is God, Son is God, Spirit is God. Well, there it is, there's the Trinity. One God in three persons. And the same commonsensical philosophical distinction between person and nature that explains the incarnation also explains the Trinity. There's no contradiction in either doctrine because of that distinction. Christians don't believe that Christ is one person and two persons. That's a meaningless contradiction. Or that Christ has one nature and two natures. That's a meaningless contradiction. But rather that he is one person with two natures. Well, Christians don't believe that the Trinity is one God and three gods. Or that God has one divine nature and three divine natures. No, God is three divine persons but one divine nature or substance. It's a mystery, but it's not a contradiction. Well, how are these four doctrines true in terms of my three kinds of truth? Subjective truth, objective truth, divine truth. Well, all three. First of all, they're true objectively, factually, historically, literally. Secondly, they are true in your life if you are a believer. The truth is eaten, internalized, even on earth. We're not talking about mystical, heavenly truth that's like 
divine gold that enters into your your soul's stomach. We're just talking about ordinary faith through a glass darkly in this life. Conversion is turning around from darkness to light. Turning around from falsehood to truth. Uh, standing in the light so that the light enters your eye and the knowledge enters your mind. Uh, but it's not just conceptual knowledge. It's him. Thus, it's a new birth. But notice that objective truth comes first. Subjective truth is the internalizing of objective truth. It doesn't work the other way around. Projecting of some subjective truth out there doesn't objectify it. Finally, divine truth. What's that? Well, that's the truth that we are all destined for. The truth that is like an ocean. And we're destined to surf in God's ocean forever. Uh, we enter into the divine truth and into the divine beauty and into the divine joy. It does not enter into us. The divinity of Christ is meant to enter into us and to impact our lives by a kind of perpetual adoration. We don't have to spend 24 hours in the sanctuary before the Blessed Eucharist to practice perpetual adoration. Just as a married man practices perpetual love, although he doesn't have to consciously think or verbally say, I love you at every single moment to his wife, but the fact that he is living out that love in everything that he does, from brushing his teeth to setting the alarm clock, so we are to live out the truth of the divinity of Christ uh, in uh, a perpetual love relationship. And we are to live out the truth of the atonement in a perpetual freedom relationship. We are free from sin and free from guilt and therefore free from the fear of death. There's a wonderfully profound book somewhere, a verse somewhere in one of St. Paul's epistles where he speaks of uh, those who through fear of death were kept in constant bondage were freed by Christ's atonement. We still have to die, but we don't have to be afraid of death. Let me put it very plainly. We all know that we don't deserve to go to heaven. That's why we're afraid of death. Nobody in this world knows for sure, without the shadow of a doubt, that there is or is not a hell. So people will say, oh, I don't believe in hell. Well, maybe consciously, but deep down they have doubts. That's why they're afraid of death. They're not afraid of death just because of pain. Most deaths are not very painful. They're not afraid of death because they want to live another hundred years. That would be boring. They're afraid of death because they know that somehow or other in the final reckoning, justice must be done. And nobody deserves God. We don't get God by justice. So we're afraid of death. But Christ frees us from the fear of death and therefore from all fear. We can laugh at fears. That's the payoff of the atonement. We could uh, gather up the questions. I'll start to pose them. Uh, I will have an opening question. At one point you said all of the human science, all of human science is understanding God's art. And at another point you said theory, theories, theories or theory doesn't judge data. Data judges theory. Uh, 
address the questions of intelligent design, creation science on the one hand, uh, versus the theories of Darwin and theories of evolution on the other, in light of what you said in those two places. Gee, that's an easy one. Okay. What a waste of time there has been in the 20th century over arguing about Darwinism. Darwinism means one of two things. It's either a scientific theory about the evolution of biological species by natural selection, or else it's a theological theory about the ultimate origin of humanity. If it's the second thing, it's not science at all. It's pseudoscience, it's theology, and it's bad theology. If it's the first thing, it has to be judged, first of all, by scientific criteria. Now, the theory is in trouble today. Respectable scientists say there are serious problems with it. Uh, I won't go into the details, but still, it's the only theory on the market that explains some of the data. Uh, here's the fossil record, which almost nobody disputes. Well, almost nobody. I had a fundamentalist friend once who believed the world was only 6,000 years old. I said, don't you know science? Don't you know like the fossils, carbon-14 dating? He said, yeah. I said, how do you explain the fossils? He said, God created the world with fossils in it to tempt scientists. I said, how do you know God didn't create you two minutes ago with fossil memories in you? Here's the fossil record. How did, they, how did these different species arise? Well, one theory is natural selection. Uh, what's the other one? I suppose direct creation. But that doesn't seem to be God's style. Directly intervening with perpetual miracles. God doesn't like to do that. It seems to me, this is a strange thing to say, and I say it subject to correction, because it smells sort of liberal, and I'm not a liberal, but I, although I firmly believe in miracles, I don't think God likes to work them, and I think his greatest miracle is not working miracles. He hides. If the sun hid its light and still heated the earth, that would be a miracle. Well, God is constantly working at every moment, but we don't see him. He works through natural laws. Well, anyway, I think God's style makes Darwin's theory perfectly reasonable. So I have absolutely no problems with natural selection until the scientists tell me that theory is replaced by a better one. And I see no contradiction whatsoever between the Bible and uh, Darwin, until Darwin becomes a theologian. Because even Genesis suggests something like natural selection. It uses the unique Hebrew word barach, which means create out of nothing, something only God can do, and a word that only the Hebrew language has. It uses that only three times, not six times. The six days of so-called creation, no. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created great beasts, and God created man in his own image. The other times, the other days of creation, uh, use the other Hebrew word, which I don't know, which means make out of something that was there already. And that includes man's body. And God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Obviously, man is not just the dust or ape dust of the ground. He is also uh, a direct breath from God. Uh, but the divine breath has no fossils, so Darwin can say nothing about that. So I see no contradiction whatsoever 
in saying that God patiently used natural selection to prepare a body with a cranial capacity sufficient to host human consciousness and then miraculously gave man consciousness, a soul. So I see no problem at all. Having, having written on, well, but save that one. Was there a roadmap to God before Christ? Please explain. Yeah, uh, God's prophets, especially Moses. Uh, Jesus himself affirms that, that roadmap. Uh, the relation between Christianity and Judaism is radically different than the relation between Christianity and any other religions because Jesus wasn't a Muslim or a Buddhist, but he was a Jew. He affirmed everything in Judaism and all the prophets and fulfilled it. And Jesus never told Jews to convert from Judaism to Christianity. He told them and everybody else to convert from sin to him. And in the first century, when Jews became Christians, they didn't think themselves to have apostatized from their Judaism, although the other Jews thought so. Uh, and then for 19 centuries, they did. And now, once again, we're going back to that wonderful New Testament clarity. When Jews become Christians today, they almost always say, I am now a completed Jew, like Jesus. How do you think, what do you think heaven is or will be like? Heaven is the presence of God, who is infinite light and infinite love. And therefore, heaven is like the greatest earthly light and the greatest earthly love. And the only two things on earth that never get boring are light and love, or truth and love. And people who have out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences, if they go deeply enough into that experience and meet the so-called being of light, always come back with that wisdom. They say, you can't take anything with you except these two things. And they say, I'm going to devote my life, the rest of my life, to these two things, truth and love. You have alluded to your admiration of Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Which of its themes would we as Christians do well to consider? All of them. I agree. Uh, should I select one? Themes. Struggle. I guess the most obvious to me from the very first reading of the book was Divine Providence. The presence of God in, in telling the story, in providing for our needs, in being anonymously present at every step. God doesn't appear in The Lord of the Rings as a character, and yet he's everywhere. Uh, when they enter Lothlorien, the elf forest, it's a magical place. And Frodo says to, to, to Sam, there's magic all over this place. Uh, and yet you can't see anybody working it. That's a great line. That's, Middle Earth is this Earth, you know. It's not a fantasy world. It's the third rock from the sun. When comparing Christianity to the other great religions, are we fundamentally alike and superficially different, or are we superficially alike and fundamentally different? Neither. The comparison misunderstands what a religion is. A religion is not a philosophy. You can compare philosophies by saying, let's divide them into these ideas and those ideas, and now let's play poker with these ideas. Red chips over here, blue chips over there, so many red chips, so many blue chips. 
you can play that game with doctrines and you say you can say for instance that uh, oh christianity and hinduism are different in that hinduism says god is not a person and christianity says god is and they're sort of similar in that hinduism says that god is uh, being light and bliss such and ananda and christianity too says god has those three attributes but in a sort of different way and they're they're alike in condemning certain sins such as selfishness and lust well you can play that game abstractly and it's meaningful but the heart of a religion is not just something abstract the heart of a religion is like a marriage it's a relationship so frankly i don't know what goes on between the hindu and the true god and what that relationship is that's a very mysterious thing so i don't think we're in a position to clearly answer that question certainly not in the way that it was asked is there more in common or more different instead of asking the question that way let's ask it a different way uh, when a hindu or a buddhist or a muslim or a confucian uh, or a pop psychologist uh, relates to God in the way of his or her religion, uh, is it the real God that they're relating to? Could be, sure. Uh, well, then, is there something defective in that relationship? Yeah, they don't know Jesus. They may have him, but they don't know him. What do you mean have him? Well, he's the light. He's the only light. Uh, so insofar as they have light, they have him but they don't acknowledge him. And that's an enormous defect. I personally know some Muslims who are very, very pious, probably more pious than, than most of us. Uh, but they say Jesus is just a, a prophet, a wonderful man, but only a prophet. Uh, and I say to myself, how can you be so pious if you don't know that? And my suspicion is that Jesus is very generously giving a lot of himself to them, even though they don't know him and acknowledge him. But that's got to be an enormous disadvantage. It's like being married but not knowing who you're married to. Uh, should the Red Sox pick up the $17.5 million option on Pedro Martinez for 2004? Now, that's the first difficult question of the day. Or should they go ahead and allow him to become a Yankee? Neither. They should not pick up the option on his contract because that's not their policy and he's just an ordinary human being like anybody else even though there is a theory that he's got in disguise. And secondly, they should, they should all go out of business before they let him become a Yankee. They should, they should kill him before they let him become a Yankee. If the heart of God is defined by unconditional love, divine truth and wisdom, and if God lives, in each of our hearts, then what defines us? First of all, love and truth don't define God any more than sunlight defines the sun. They are the best we can know of what God is like. Secondly, we too are at our heart not definable. We can define our limits. We can say we're not angels, we're not animals. 
we have souls, we have bodies. So in a sense, we can be defined. Certainly we're finite. We have limits. God doesn't. And finally, God doesn't live in everybody's heart. That's why not everybody is going to be saved. Uh, God at the last judgment looks into your heart and if he sees himself, his reflection, his son living there, uh, then he says, I know you. But if he doesn't see it, he says, I don't know who you are. At least that's what Jesus says. That's what the Bible says. That's what the church has always said. I know it's a very unpopular doctrine. But if the whole world says one thing and Jesus says another thing, I'll take Jesus. Is there suffering in heaven? Does one have the choice to sin in heaven? Those are two different questions. You do not have the choice to sin in heaven because you're free. The freedom of choice is a necessary freedom in this life in order to attain the higher freedom of true liberty. I am free to make a mistake in balancing my checkbook. But when I am asked the question, does two and two equal four or five? I am not free to say five, because I know four. In which state am I higher and more liberated? I think in the state where I know with certainty that two and two are four and not five, rather than the state where I'm ignorant and making a mistake in balancing my checkbook, because no one prefers ignorance to knowledge. So in heaven, we will have knowledge, and that knowledge will make us incapable of sin. If you're in the beatific vision, you're not tempted to sin. One ingredient in sin, not the only one, but one ingredient in every sin is ignorance. Here's a thief who steals a million dollars from a bank vault. Why does he steal a million dollars? Because he sees that million dollars as something that's going to make him happy. He's a fool. It's not going to make him happy. Not deep down, not in the long run. If he saw that million dollars as it really was, if he saw that gold as it really was, he'd say, oh, that's what the streets are paved with in heaven. What are the streets paved with on earth? Tar, concrete. Do you steal tar and concrete? No. It's good stuff, but it's not something you give your heart to. So to give your heart to stuff like money is like as foolish as giving your heart to stuff like concrete or tar. So the thief is a fool. He wouldn't steal cockroaches. Why? He sees that they're not going to make him happy. So there is indeed ignorance in every sin, but it's ignorance that we are responsible for. We deliberately choose to ignore the truth. We put ourselves into a state of ignorance. Now, in heaven, there's no more ignorance. Uh, we're in the full light of God. So there won't be even any temptation to sin. But we'll be free. Totally free. You're freer when you know than when you don't know. I'm, I would not be very free to live in Nicaragua because I know nothing about the economics and almost nothing about the culture. But if I knew a lot more, I'd be freer. So knowledge and freedom can't go in opposite directions. So that was the easy question. What was the other one? That was a two-part question. Does one have the choice to sin in heaven? Yeah, and then there was another. Is there suffering in heaven? Oh, is there suffering in heaven? Maybe. 
Labels are kind of a blissful suffering. Uh, even on Earth, there's a kind of suffering we want. And I don't mean merely purgatory, reparation for sin. I mean heroism. The medieval knight wants to slay dragons and not just rabbits for his lady love. So maybe there's a kind of heroism in heaven. I don't know. C.S. Lewis suggests something like that in his chapter on heaven in The Problem of Pain, which I think is one of the most beautiful and exalted things I have ever written. Written. Oh boy, what a Freudian slip. Read on the subject. You see, I, I am such a plagiarist, but I shamelessly <laughs> highly recommended them. What part or role does the Roman Catholic Church play in the salvation process between God and man through my Lord Jesus? If the Roman Church is part of this process, why? Shouldn't all glory be given to God and God alone when someone is saved? Absolutely. God uses instruments and therefore shares his glory. Not his unique prerogative of being the first cause of all glory, but like a good human parent, uh, like a good human teacher, like a good human king, he wants to exalt and glorify his subordinates. Among his subordinates, the Catholic Church teaches that the kingdom of God subsists outside the Catholic Church as well as inside it, but it subsists most perfectly and completely inside it. Father Feeney was excommunicated many years ago for teaching that the formula of the church fathers, outside the church, no salvation, means that all Catholics go to hell. So he was punished by being put outside the church, outside of which he taught there was no salvation. Which is a kind of divine irony, I guess. Many members of the Anglican Church, such as myself, do not understand the spiritual basis most everyone understands the historical basis for the exclusion of us Anglicans from the Roman Catholic Church. Is there such a spiritual basis, or do all Catholics and Anglicans alike need to step up their prayers for church leadership? Well, of course we all need to step up our prayers, but if you read carefully the documents of Vatican II, I think you'll find that what the Catholic Church teaches about non-Catholic Christians isn't quite as exclusive as that. Uh, the word church can mean many things. And it, one of the things that it does not mean is a society in which you can identify the spiritual membership with the visible membership. There is one church. Christ is not a polygamist. He doesn't have a harem when he comes back uh, in the second coming. He's not going to marry uh, a whole bunch of wives, just one. He has one body. Uh, and that body is visible as well as invisible. But I don't believe the Roman Catholic Church claims that in every sense she is the only visible body, much less invisible body, but rather that she is the, the fullness of that body and the one that has the historical continuity. But the branch theory of many Anglicans, namely that Anglicans are Catholics uh, or branches of the Catholic Church, that's an attractive notion. And frankly, when I became a Catholic many 
centuries ago. Uh, I found it attractive myself because I love Anglican liturgy. My friend Tom Howard, who was a almost lifelong Anglican, became a Catholic about 10, 15 years ago. I used to joke with him that I pray that you'll die in the true church, but not until your deathbed, so you'll have all the liturgical fun before you die. Uh, Did C.S. Lewis believe in paradise on earth? No. He explicitly repudiated that. That's utopianism. The world is critical of those who feel who they feel are judgmental, all the while judging those who they feel are judgmental. What does judge not, lest you be judged, mean in light of absolute truth? That's pretty simple, I think. It means don't play God. God judges hearts. God judges persons' eternal worth and destiny. We can't do that. But, of course, we have to judge acts. God himself does that. That's one of the reasons he sends prophets. How can my wife be happy in heaven if I am not there or her loved ones? If you are really worried about that question, then please pray as hard as you can that everyone you know will be in heaven with you. The practical answer to that problem is very clear. God gives us a lot of practical answers without giving us clear theoretical answers. I don't know the theoretical answer to the question how we could be happy in heaven if anybody that we loved on earth is not there with us. That's a very serious and very mysterious question. But I know that there's got to be an answer to it because God's happy and God's in heaven. Now, did Jesus love Judas Iscariot? Sure he did. He's one of his kids. Is Judas Iscariot in heaven? Sure, it doesn't look like it. Jesus said it would have been better if that man had never been born. Is Jesus in heaven? Yes. Is Jesus happy? Yes. How? I don't know. You said that God cannot come into us, but we can go into God. What happens when we take Holy Communion? What seems to happen is that God comes into us. What really happens is that we come into God. And God empties himself, as he did in the Incarnation, in one more step. He becomes not just equal to us, but less than us. So he can come into us, apparently. And that's really how he gets us into him. He's, he's very tricky that way. The, my friend Christopher Derrick wrote a poem entitled The Resurrection of the Body. Uh, I found it quite profound. It does to the precious blood what I just did with the body. Uh, the poem goes like this, very short. He's a terror, that one. Turns water into wine, wine into blood. I wonder what he turns blood into. Since neither the term purgatory nor the concept is mentioned in the Holy Scriptures, could God just as easily, totally and perfectly complete the sanctification process with our, upon our death on this earth? I'm not sure whether God completes the sanctification process gradually or instantly. I'm not sure how we can properly measure purgatory. The traditional Catholic measuring system has always meant to be uh, non-literal. 
300 years in purgatory, 500 years in purgatory. They are relative degrees. Uh, the Pope made that clear in one of his statements back in the 80s. The necessity of something like purgatory is very clear from Scripture. Although the word isn't there, neither is the word Trinity. Uh, number one, we're sinners. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, the saints are the clearest about the fact that they're sinners. All right, so we die justified, but not completely sanctified. We still have bad habits, bad memories, some bad stuff in us. If you think that there's no change between what you are a moment before death and what you'll be in heaven, then you have either an incredibly arrogant notion about what you are before death or an incredibly human notion about what you're going to be in heaven. So to effect that transformation from sinner to saint, from imperfectly sanctified to perfectly sanctified, God has to do something. If you don't want to call it purgatory, let's not quibble about words. Why not just create people with true liberty from the start? Why not, why not give us this knowledge now? He did in Eden. We lost it. Both in Eden and now we're in time. So the gift of liberty is a habit that's meant to be fully actualized. Thomistic philosophers use a term called virtual that's halfway between potential and actual. A tree has the potential for being turned into a desk. Uh, this is an actual desk. But a human mind is not just potential to knowing, it's virtually knowing. We don't have innate ideas at birth, but we have a power that can get ideas. And the human heart and the human will uh, at birth are not moral in the sense of having the virtues, but they virtually have them. They're meant to have them. So I think it's that category that we can use there to explain it. How will we experience the human body in heaven? How will we, we, how will we be freer in a resurrected body that frees us from sin? Well, we don't know beans about that. We've got only a few hints, and most of the hints are in the Gospels in Christ's resurrection body. That's our only data. And two things that strike us are, number one, it's a real body. It can be touched. It can eat. It's not a ghost. It's a spiritual body. Paul contrasts our present mortal bodies with the spiritual bodies in 1 Corinthians 15. But that doesn't mean immaterial. It means totally under the control of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so it's, it's a real body. But on the other hand, it's so different than what we have now that Jesus' best friends didn't recognize him at first. They didn't recognize him, and then they did. Uh, the only two ways I can cast, try to cast a tiny little bit of light on this incredible mystery are, number one, the Old Testament Hebrew notion of the Shekinah, the divine light of glory that surrounded Moses' face when he came down from Sinai and surrounded the Ark of the Covenant. A number of Jewish theologians believe that in the Adam and Eve story in Genesis, the reason why they wove animal skins to cover their bodies 
in shame after the fall was that before the fall, their bodies were full of God's light, the Shekinah, and the light went out, like an ET, the heart light. That's one possibility. The other possibility, a little more mysteriously, is that the resurrection body is so transparent to the soul that you see a person's soul totally through their body. When somebody's asleep, you're not embarrassed to look on their body because they're not looking back at you. If they're sort of half asleep, you might be a little embarrassed. If their eyes are open but they're just in a state of boredom, you're not that embarrassed. If they're peering into you with their eyes, if they're utterly alert, if they understand you totally, then you're either embarrassed or fulfilled. If you look into the eyes of the one that you love, uh, that's a very mysterious experience. You don't just look at the eyes, you look into them. And then if you know this person very well, that fact about the eyes, that they are the window of the soul, is true of the whole face. And maybe even of the whole body, body language. Here's a man and a woman who are so intimate, understand each other so well, that they're both at a party, and they're both acting very polite, but the man knows that the woman is bored. Nobody else knows that. So he says, let's go home. How does he know that? Well, just a little tweak of the hand. Well, I think the resurrection body will be so transparent that we'll see the soul that clearly. You mentioned something to the effect that man can know animals better than he can know God, yet we are made in God's image and likeness. And with our rebirth, we become one with him. Expound, please, or clarify. We can certainly know God even in this life more intimately and deeply than we can know animals because there's more there to know. But we can know God infinitely less adequately than we can know animals. We can exhaust maybe 10% of what's in animals. We can't exhaust one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one-percent of what's in God. What do you think of the Harry Potter books? I like them. They're fun. They're just good children's stories, very well written. Uh, I don't think anybody that's normal is going to seriously do bad stuff like believe in black magic uh, just because he reads Harry Potter. So I have no quarrel with Potter. They can't hold a candle to Tolkien or even the Chronicles of Narnia. But they're good. They're fun. Uh, I may need help uh, with this question from Ross, I think. Uh, Having written on Socrates, how would you answer Father Bright's question, despite Socrates not knowing Christ? Not, what what was Father sure Bright's question was. about Socrates not knowing Christ? How would Socrates answer what question about divine truth? He would do it much better than I did, and he would have gotten you all involved from the beginning in a Socratic dialogue, and he would have creatively confused you, and you would have walked out here much wiser than you will now, because you will walk out here now saying, hey, that was a good idea. Christ made you wiser than I was before. What a wise person I am. In other words, I made you fools. He would have confused you, and you would have walked out saying, gee, I... Before I knew it all, but now I know nothing. And you would have walked out twice. So he would have done it better than I did. Uh, we had one questioner submit six questions, and I've asked three of them, and that's all I'm going to ask of those questions. So we just have a couple. If free will 
is simply a means to an end by people in heaven not being able to sin, why use free will instead of giving all people knowledge of God or creating people with this knowledge and true liberty in the first place? I think you may have addressed this, but go ahead again. If we had this knowledge, yet a burglar foolishly believes stealing will benefit himself or herself and wouldn't do such a thing with this knowledge, how do you reconcile this knowledge of Adam and Eve that the knowledge of Adam and Eve had with your statements about the burglar? The mysterious part of that question is what could have motivated the fall? They had preternatural gifts, including the awareness of God's presence. In a state like that, why in the world would they prefer to throw it off for nothing? I don't know. That is a very mysterious question. The hints were given in Genesis 3 are just that, only hints. The devil appears to Eve, invents the world's oldest profession, advertising. See this apple? You need this apple. Christ, just one soul. And she believes him. I don't know why she believes him. Uh, I can imagine why Adam believes her. He loves her. My wife, right or wrong. Uh, but... Why did she believe him? Well, clearly it was a crisis of faith first. If Eve's hand had reached out to grab that apple and a storm had intervened and she pulled her hand back and she never touched the apple, the fall would have happened anyway because she intended it. Intentional murder is, morally speaking, murder. Why did she intend it? Why did she choose to eat the forbidden fruit? Well, let's look. The devil says, did God say if you eat that you'll die? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's not true. Here's what will happen when you eat that. You see, God's got a dark side. He hasn't told you about his dark side. I'm his dark side. Uh, your theologian, your great theologian is really George Lucas, the author of the Star Wars trilogy. Uh, you know, the Force has a dark side. And Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, they're all one. Uh, and uh, wouldn't you like to know God better? Wouldn't you like to know his dark side? So what will happen if you eat this fruit? It's not that you'll die. What will happen is that you'll know two things. Right now you know only one thing, good. But you'll know two things. You'll know good and evil. Evil? I don't understand what that is. Ah, uh, see? Wouldn't you like to know? Yeah. Okay. Notice her choice is first who to believe, who to trust, God or the devil. So clearly, faith comes before works. But what motivated her to trust the devil rather than God? I don't know. Sin has always been mysterious. Maybe just because I'm a philosopher who admires Plato and agrees with a lot of him, not all of him. And Plato makes out a good case, a very good case, for a wrong conclusion. The wrong conclusion is that all evil is only ignorance. But the strong case he makes out for it is evil always has to be motivated by ignorance. I think he forgets that ignorance is also caused by evil. Uh, but I look at myself and I say, you know, I'm insane. I deliberately choose joy to misery because every time I sin by omission or commission, the result is misery. And any time I reject it, the result is joy. Every morning, I wake up, the same thing happens. The alarm clock rings, 
and a thousand tiny little midget soldiers jump out of the alarm clock with with pens and stick them into my brain saying think about this think about this think about this think about this worry about this and God is way back in the background waiting he doesn't have a pen he waits for me to come to him I can see him smiling there and I know if I kill these soldiers and welcome God first thing in the morning that the whole day will be good I know I'm like that little boy in the story in John's gospel he's got five loaves and two fishes there and if he gives them to Christ, he'll get them back multiplied. And if he doesn't, he won't. And my lives and my loaves and fishes and yours too are time. Time is precious. Time is life. Life, time. So we all know from our faith and from our experience repeatedly, we've done this experiment every day of our lives, that when we give our time to God, he gives it back to us. And the result is joy. And when we don't, the result is misery. Now, we're absolutely certain of this, and we want joy rather than misery. So what do we do? We choose misery. We're nuts. We're crazy. Doesn't make sense at all. Sin is nuts. A final question. Um, you spoke of the four great doctrines, incarnation, atonement, resurrection, the blessed trinity. Uh, at least from my own observation, uh, right now, uh, from many of the pulpits of our country, of our community, the atonement seems to be one that is uh, the most disturbing to some even who profess the Christian belief and some even explicitly say that they don't feel God would require or that we need a sacrificial death as a prelude to our salvation. How would you respond if you were trying to be you know, persuasive with such folks rather than simply proof texting? Well, I'd first ask why you don't like the doctrine of the atonement. And if the answer is, because I don't see why a loving God would take this cruel, as one put it, butcher shop theology, in preference to simply saying you're free. So I'd say, okay, I think you've got one profound truth and one profound mistake in your mind. The profound truth is love. God is even more loving, more compassionate, more generous, more ready to forgive than you can imagine. Totally agree with you. So the only reason that he would require atoning sacrifice and death is justice. Now, what do you think justice is? And if he says, well, justice is just playing by the rules, being fair, I'd say, that's what I thought. I think you misunderstand justice. Justice is not just a human virtue, justice is a divine attribute. God has to be just. God can't be unjust. He can't bend the rules because the rules are not arbitrary. They're not positive laws that are made by his will and could be revoked by his will. They're natural laws which are based on his nature. So even God can't relax the laws of justice. Justice is like mathematics. He can't change the rules. The rules are not arbitrary. So what he did on Calvary was to satisfy both justice and forgiveness or mercy or charity simultaneously and fulfill that wonderful prophecy in the Psalms, justice and peace are met together, uh, righteousness and truth have uh, come together, truth has sprung out of the earth and justice has looked down from heaven. The reconciliation of heaven and earth in the incarnation caused the reconciliation of justice and mercy on Calvary. 
And he did it by giving us the mercy and Christ the justice. Like a judge who sees his own son convicted of uh, some crime and is tempted to relax the law of justice. But if he's a good judge, he won't do that. So he'll say, son, you cracked up this car by reckless driving. And uh, the penalty for that is you lose your license for six months and you have to pay a $10,000 fine. Uh, and then, clicks in his mercy, and he says, uh, well, you'll have to suffer uh, the six months loss of license, but I'll pay your fine. Then he gets out his own checkbook. But forgiveness costs something. It costs God something. If I forgive you your debt to me, I still have to pay my creditors out of my own money. So it cost me something. That's justice. Maybe, on the other hand, the person who doesn't like the doctrine of the atonement isn't somebody who doesn't understand justice, but somebody who doesn't understand truth. Maybe he thinks God can sort of hide his face. Now, this may be a misunderstanding on my part. Uh, and if there's any Lutherans here who can correct me, I would be very appreciative of it. But I always understood Lutheran theology to, to say one very, very foolish thing. Namely, what they call the federal theory of the atonement. That God doesn't look at our sins, but he interposes Christ between his eyes and our sins. And all he sees is Christ. Our sins are still really there. But he pretends they're not. I don't think God can do that. So that doesn't work. Maybe worst of all, somebody believes that the atonement is silly because they don't believe in sin. In which case Jesus is totally superfluous because that's what he came for. And then we get into a much more serious problem, namely a moral relativism which has infected our whole culture uh, and which C.S. Lewis, uh, who was an Oxford Don and therefore not given to exaggeration, described this way. He says, this idea that morality is relative and that we can change it, this idea will certainly damn our souls and end our species. Why damn our souls? Well, if you believe that there's no real moral law then there's no sin, because that's what defines sin. If there's no sin, there's no need for repentance. If there's no repentance, there's no salvation. That's one of Jesus' requirements for salvation. He doesn't just say believe. He says repent and believe. Now, I'm not saying that every moral relativist goes to hell, but it certainly imperils salvation. So that's the most serious problem with the atonement. Uh, you might understand the atonement a little better by watching little boys play with toy guns. I used to be sympathetic to the argument that little boys shouldn't play with toy guns because it instills violence in them. Maybe it does sometimes, but when I watch little boys play with toy guns, I'm impressed at how moral they are. They play justice games. Good guy, bad guy. Okay, I'll be the good guy. Now, next time, I'll be the bad guy. And the good guy has to kill the bad guy. They understand through that little game playing that there is such a thing as justice, that there is good and that there is bad, and that good has to be rewarded and bad has to be punished. 
And if they don't learn that, then later when they learn mercy, it's cheap. I want to thank Father Patrick Bright and the Anglican Foundation and All Souls Episcopal for uh, today's events. And I look forward to returning for uh, the last service tomorrow to hear some more. And I'd ask Father Bright to come up right now to close us with prayer. And thank you all for your kind attention and thank our speaker.